Well, good morning. Good to see everybody again. I don't know if you all know, but I almost had to lead worship this week. And thankfully, Darlene showed up. So you dodged a bullet there. Um, we should have been singing Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. Uh, I did forget to make some announcements to point out some things on the bulletin. So make sure that you're, you're reading that. Uh, we're, we've been doing Bible study. We're trying to move it to, to Monday nights. It's a little bit later, uh, but tomorrow night uh, we're going to be doing that at, at 730. Uh, and we're going to be finishing up, putting a bow on our, our series on uh, hermeneutics, which is just how to read the Bible and approach it as literature. And uh, we're going to be dealing with the book of Revelation there. So bring all the questions you've ever had about Revelation, and I'm going to answer every one of them definitively. Uh, so there'll no longer be any confusion. going to tell you all about the end times. Uh, that's probably not going to happen. I'm just going to do the best. I'll probably be a lot of I don't knows. And uh, this is how we approach apocalyptic literature, I think. (laughs) And so uh, we'll work through that together and it should be a fun time. We're going to continue in the book of Judges this morning, and we've made it all the way up towards the end of chapter 16. And uh, what we're going to cover today is verses 22 through 31, which is going to be the end of the Samson narrative or the Samson story. And what we have is Samson, who's supposed to be this paramount judge. He's supposed to bring this great deliverance to Israel, we would think. Uh, But it turns out he, he fails in a lot of ways. And, uh, and so we saw some of his failures last week, right? Uh, we, were, we went through the first 21 verses and we said that any master that we have other than Jesus is cruel, unsatisfying, and deadly. And so we said that we needed to make Jesus our master. And we visited some of Samson's masters or his idols. And we pointed out that they were sexuality and or danger among others. Then we looked at some of Delilah's masters, which we said for her were greed and glory or celebrity. She was in it to make some money and make some friends. Uh, and then we walked through kind of their dysfunctional relationship as she uh, not so covertly uh, asked Samson, hey, how can I tie you up, bind you? and make sure that your strength is all gone. And uh, Samson kind of played with fire there. And on the fourth time, he got burned and he got captured by the Philistines and had both of his eyes gouged out. And we left him grinding grinding at the grain mill and enslaved to the Philistines. And so I'll start there and read verse 21 to you. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And they bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. And then the author takes his pen, and and I love this verse. This is what he writes. It foreshadows a little bit of what's to come, because already once at the end of chapter 15, we had, and Samson judged Israel 20 years, and we thought, all right, that's the end of the story. And then we read this little narrative about his interaction with Delilah, and we think, here he is grinding out uh, at the mill in the prison, and it's over. He, his eyes are gone. He has been defeated. The judge of God has been defeated. And we have verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow. And it kind of builds some anticipation. And so that's where we're going to get ready to dive into the text this morning. And we're going to work through it in three sections. Uh, we're going to look at the growing hair. The growing faith, the grave and the shadow, the growing hair, the growing faith, the grave and the shadow. And what I hope to show you this morning is that God acts on behalf of his people. And I want to exhort you to lose your life. Before we get into it uh, too much, let's let's pray together. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your kindness. We thank you that indeed your kindness leads us to repentance and leads us unto salvation. That is life together with you, life without regret, life and life abundant. Lord Jesus, we trust in you this morning and we ask that you meet us here in this place. That you teach us what it is to follow you. That indeed it's a difficult road. That daily we need to deny ourselves. Daily we need to commit ourselves to your mission. To your gospel by which we have been saved. And by which every tongue, tribe, and nation will be saved. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uniting us together in love this morning in this community. We thank you that the church is a people and that we as your people uh, get to work together, uh, work out this Christian life together. And so, Lord, just speak to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. But the hair on his head began to grow. And so we must first ask this question. uh, If his strength was in his hair, at least the Philistines thought that Samson's strength was in his hair. Why on earth would they let his hair grow back, right? I mean, any idiot can see that hair is going to grow. Mine's actually looking pretty raggedy right now. Uh, but, but why didn't they just set up some kind of plan where, hey, every week or so we're going we're gonna, to you know, give him uh, a trim. We're going to get his ears lower. We're just going to keep that hair nice and short. So why do the Philistines let his hair grow? And, and I think this. I think they concluded that since his hair was kind of tied together with this Nazarite vow or the separating of his life unto the Lord. And so he had broken the vow and like completely, right? He had ate unclean things. He had uh, drank alcohol. And then lastly, he had his hair cut since he had completely abandoned this vow, they assumed that God would completely abandon him. And so even if his hair grew grew back, he wouldn't be a threat to them in any way. But see, they didn't understand that uh, the God of the Bible is not a God like their gods. It's not, Christianity is unlike any other religion. You see, every other religion kind of has this procedure that you can follow and then get God to respond to you in a certain way. You can work out and, and, and God has to work in response to what you do. See, they don't understand that Samson's strength came not from his ability to keep his vow, but from the God to who he had made the vow. Michael Wilcox says it like this. The Philistines knew nothing of the God of grace, nothing of the God who does the unexpected of the God whose strength is made perfect in weakness, of the God who never breaks his word. It was this God that had said to Samson, he would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. You see, God's abandonment of his servant could not be but temporary. The promise was bound to hold, however Samson might despise it or be unable to keep it. There is grace abounding even to the chief of sinners. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he will not deny himself. You see, the Philistine gods were gods that could be manipulated. But the God of grace is faithful to us, even when we're unfaithful to him. He's not bound or limited or constrained by the actions of his people. He's free to bless sinners, to love a sinful people. Even somebody like Samson. And Samson's hair growing back isn't meant to make us think, hey, his hair is growing back so soon he's going to be strong again. Instead, it's meant to make us think that the Philistines believe his strength to be gone. 
because the vow's broken. They don't understand how God is working, that his strength left him because God left him. It's meant to point us to God's faithfulness rather than Samson's disobedience. I think that uh, this helps us to see the concept that Jesus is always working things out for our good and for his glory, even when that doesn't seem true, even when things are hard and grim and glib, even in the trials of life, God is still working on behalf of his people because God acts on behalf of his people and that his promises are true and they remain true because he set his love on us. Remember, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else. And all creation will separate us from the love of God. Nothing will keep God from keeping his promises. He is faithful even when we are faithless. Think that, in fact, difficult circumstances and suffering are often necessary for us to grasp the gospel. And to hold on to it as our only hope. It's a, it's a pruning, if you will. These hardships in life. And this pruning is necessary for us to flourish. For us to become what God has declared us to be in truth. That is to be sanctified. That is to become holy as God is holy. It makes me think in John 15, starting with verse 2. Jesus reminds us, he says this. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, when we encounter periods of pruning in our lives, we should look at them as a blessing because our circumstances really haven't changed. I mean, yeah, the worldly circumstances change, but our ultimate circumstance of being in Jesus Christ has not changed. That's why Paul says, no matter what circumstances I face, I can face any circumstance through Christ who strengthens me. Right? I can face all things. He's saying I can face any circumstance through Christ who strengthens me because that's where my joy is is that's where my life is so even during hard periods of my life i know that they're there for my good and for god's glory and typically during these uh, pruning periods we press hard into jesus in ways that we would not otherwise it's usually in these hard times in life that prayer becomes very fervent it becomes a necessity like food or water During these times, we remember that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So we remember that we need to abide in him. And that we remember and hold on to his promises. That we are secure in him and we know that he won't lose us. Love in John 10, uh, 27, when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Indeed, what a great joy to know that God will not lose us. But but here's something funny uh, in trials and in pruning. He won't lose us, but he requires that we lose ourselves in order to find him. God will never lose us, but we must lose ourselves 
After all, in Mark 8, 34 through 36, uh, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose or would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? You see, Samson had found the world entirely attractive, completely satisfying, completely unsatisfying, that is. And he had surrendered himself to its gods and to his idols. He had been mastered by it. It took the loss of his eyes, the loss of his freedom, in order for him to recognize his spiritual blindness and his spiritual enslavement. Let me ask you this morning, what will it take for you To see that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That your strength is not your own. What will it take for you to lose yourself? Still, it seems, even in his blindness, even in his imprisonment, that Samson doesn't recognize his complete and utter dependence on God. Not until we, sometime in the next few verses, uh, starting with verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him to stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained Samson's brought out like a court jester here, right? He's the entertainment. This great hero of Israel wasn't able to deliver from the hands of the Philistine. Dagon has proved himself superior to the God of Israel, Yahweh. Now they ridicule God's judge. Samson sits blind. And he asks the young man, as laughter crashes down on him, to let him lean on the pillars. And it's here in his utter weakness, under the weight of the laughter of the Philistines, that he finds his true strength, the source of his strength. This is where he finds Christ. This is where we see his faith grow. Verse 28. Then Samson called out to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left on the other. You see, until this point, and we talked about this a little bit last week, Samson had assumed that his strength was his own, right? He was just wrecking people with that, don- that uh, jawbone of a donkey all on his own. He was just awesome all on his own. You know, that was his assumption. You know, we all know what assuming does. It it leaves you with no eyes, right? <laughs> and imprisoned. No, this, this foolish assumption had landed him in his current state. But it's from this current state of weakness that he realizes his strength. 
Leaning against these pillars, for the first time, Samson offers himself completely to God. For the first time, he takes his hands off his life. For the first time, he offers an acceptable sacrifice to God. You know, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And for the first time in his life, Samson is broken and contrite. And he prays a prayer that's much different. This is only the second time we see him pray in his life, right? And the first time, it's after he, he's killed a bunch of folks and he's really tired. And he basically is like, hey, God, uh, you going to give me some water or what? And, and the Lord answers his prayer graciously. This prayer is, is much different. It's much more humble. He, he literally prays, oh, sovereign Lord, you know, remember me. Please give me strength just one more time. See, God had brought Samson here so that he would lose himself and recognize his complete and utter dependence upon God for absolutely everything. God used Samson's sin to prune him so that he would learn to exercise his faith and bear fruit. Samson calls out to God and his strength returns. Now, some commentators throughout the book of Judges, uh, they take a much more negative view of all the judges than I do typically. And uh, that story doesn't change with Samson. I call these guys kind of the negative Nancys of the commentary world uh, of biblical interpretation. Uh, They argue, uh, as Keller notes, uh, that the request in verse 28 is it's simply vengeful and that uh, that Samson's just kind of after getting his own revenge. He doesn't have any concern with Israel. And, and I guess it's true that there's no mention here of rescuing Israel, only revenge for Samson's eyes. But against that, I think we have a couple things. First, uh, the prayer, it just highlights this newfound humility. Samson realizes that God is sovereign, which is why he uses the word Adonai here, uh, as he stands in the temple of a, a false god. Further, he uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, uh, in conjunction with Elohim. And this serves to demonstrate he is not calling out to gods in general, but a specific God, the God of Israel. And he's not demanding that he gives water to him like before. He's not, it's not a demand. It's a humble prayer asking for power. I think more strongly and most strongly, the reason that we should maybe take a more positive view of the judges uh, than we often do and, and Samson here uh, comes from Hebrews 11, which if you're not familiar with that portion of the Bible, people sometimes call it the Hall of Faith. It's like a pun on Hall of Fame. So if you like puns, you, you kind of like that. If you don't like puns, maybe you hate it a little bit. And you hate me a little bit for bringing it up. But, but what happens in Hebrews 11 is the author illustrates all these great examples of faith from the past. And so this is what happens in verse 32. He's worked his way through some of these examples. And he writes this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson. That's our guy. Jephthah of David and of Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. See, Samson's name is mentioned there as an example of faith. And I think if there's any place in Samson's life, this is certainly the place, maybe the only place, that Samson exemplifies and exercises true faith. I mean, I think verse 34 uh, in Hebrews 11 is especially compelling. Made strong out of weakness. Isn't that Samson? Made strong out of weakness. 
So I think that this final plea of Samson's for strength demonstrates his new realization that apart from God, he can do nothing. Apart from the true vine, he can bear no fruit. As we'd mentioned, until this point, he had presumed upon his strength. You know, and I think that we're like this as well. We often think that uh, the good gifts we have in life, the blessings in our life, are a result of something that we did. Hey, I got this job because I earned it. I deserve it. You know, this happened because I did, you know, fill in the blank, because of how good I am. Uh, A guy I listen to named Matt Chandler always uses Shaquille O'Neal to illustrate this, and so I'm going to try to to do the same. Uh, If you don't know who Shaquille O'Neal is, he's a a former NBA player, and in his prime, he was seven foot one. That's pretty tall. uh, And he weighed 325 pounds. Now, what you would always see this guy do, and a lot of athletes in whatever their sport is today, but he would dunk the basketball, and then, like, he would just celebrate all out, you know? He would come back down the court, rolling his head around, like, tongue out, or beat on his chest. He would let people know, I just dunked the basketball, uh, which I never really understood because, you know, you're seven foot one, you can grab the rim while you're standing flat-footed on the ground. Like, it's not really that impressive. Uh, maybe, maybe you could make a foul shot. He was really bad at foul shots, if you don't know. Maybe a jumper, I, I don't know. That maybe, maybe you could celebrate then. But the point is, is he, he would celebrate. Look how awesome I am. Look at all that I've done. I can dunk this basketball. But he didn't make himself seven foot one. You know, he didn't, he didn't put together the genetic material that made that happen. I think that the point here is that we're all prone to, to take what's been given to us and pretend like we earned it or we deserve it. When in fact, every good and perfect gift is from God and that we don't have anything that we didn't receive from God. The point here is to not be foolish like Samson was foolish and presume upon the gifts of God. Don't be foolish enough to credit ourselves with the glory that only God deserves. I think a a second thing we can learn here is that God hears those that call out to him. Samson calls out to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, please remember me. And immediately I thought of, uh, of Mark 10 in Blind Bartimaeus. Do you all remember that, that story? Let me refresh your memory a little bit. Jesus is walking along on his way to Jerusalem. Him and the disciples had just come from Jericho. They're headed towards Jerusalem. He's about to, you know, get on the donkey and have the, the triumphant entry where he gets to the temple and then does nothing before going back out of town again. And then he comes back in and cleanses it and some stuff. But he's getting ready to do some big things, right? To come in and announce himself as Messiah. And there's this guy alongside of the road. They're walking along and this blind guy, Bartimaeus, calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him says, man, shut up. Like Jesus is trying to walk here. All right, just keep that to yourself. All right. But he won't stop. He keeps shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And eventually, like, I don't know if he gets on Jesus' nerves or Jesus just hears him for the first time. But Jesus says, bring that, bring that guy over here. So they bring that, you know, Bartimaeus jumps up. He runs over to Jesus. And Jesus says, what, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, let me recover my sight. I want to see. And Jesus says this to him, and it's kind of unexpected. And he says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And the man sees, and then he follows Jesus. See, Jesus hears those that call out to him. He won't ignore it. He doesn't ignore Samson here. Now, some of us in here might think, you know, I don't really know Jesus. You know, he doesn't, you don't know what I've done. My sin is so great. He's not going to hear me. I mean, last night, you don't even know what I did last night. 
He's not going to hear me. He doesn't, he doesn't want me. I'm too dirty. But see, Jesus' grace is greater than your sin. He is sufficient to save. I mean, his grace was sufficient for Samson, who was a womanizer. It was sufficient to save, save Rahab, the prostitute. It was sufficient to save David, who had raped a woman and murdered her husband. And it was sufficient for Paul, who was basically a serial killer of Christians. See, that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus saves sinners. When we come to the end of ourselves and call out to him. When we lose ourselves. When we lose our independence and recognize we need to be dependent upon God for our salvation, for the restoration of that relationship. I mean, that's what justification is. It's Jesus stepping in and going, look, this relationship between you and the God of the universe, it's messed up. You've sinned against him. You've broken it. And Jesus is stepping in and he's saying, I'm going to make everything right. He obeys on our behalf and he dies on our behalf. Lives the life we should have lived, dies the death we should have died. This takes us to the grave in verse 30. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon the people who were in it. So that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. The most important moment of Samson's life is his death. The most important moment of Samson's life is his death. Before we get to that, though, uh, Keel and Delich point out here that Samson's death is not a suicide. It's, it's more an act of heroism. He says it's just like a hero who sees that it's necessary for him to plunge himself into the midst of his enemies with the inevitable certainty of death in order to effect the deliverance of his people and to decide the victory which he has still yet to achieve. You know, sacrifice can be thought of the giving up of oneself for the good of others. It's an act of giving up something that's valuable for the sake of something else regarded as more important or more valuable, more worthy. And Samson's life is extremely valuable. I mean, he's made in the image of God. Life is valuable. But God's deliverance of Israel from the Philistines, God's glory is more important than even Samson's own life. So he gives up his life. It's the most important act of his life. See, God had arranged it so that Samson's past failures would be forgotten at this moment as he exercised his faith with the return of his strength. And he brought down the temple of the false gods upon the Philistines, upon the enemies of Israel. In this moment where he would prove that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the the steadfast love of God would prevail against his enemies, against these counterfeit gods. Against this Dagon. See, in losing his life, he found it. He accomplished that, which was prophesied of him uh, way back when the angels came to his parents. In his last act, he brought glory to God as he tore the temple from the foundation. He proved God, the God of Israel, superior to the God of the Philistines. It was in his weakness that he became truly strong. Now, Samson's death is both similar and dissimilar from the death of Jesus. And I'm going to point out some dissimilarities first. 
First, it's different because it came on the heels of a disobedient life, right? Samson's sin leads him to the place that he's going to die. Whereas Jesus' perfectly obedient life leads him to the place where he would die. See, he dies for the disobedience of others, for our disobedience, rather than his own. Secondly, Samson's death achieved a limited goal, which was to begin deliverance from the enemy, from the Philistines. And Jesus' death achieved a once-for-all rescue. But Samson's death is also like Jesus' death in a lot of ways. Samson's end is a, it's a picture or a shadow of what's to come with Jesus on the cross. And uh, Keller is very helpful here. He points out many of these similarities. Samson and Jesus were both betrayed by someone that was close to them. Delilah for Samson, Judas for Jesus. Both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both were tortured and chained and put on public display to be mocked. Both died with outstretched arms. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies, yet both in their deaths crushed their enemy. Samson, the Philistines, and Jesus, the ultimate enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Both brought permanent alienation between the people of God and the culture of idolatry around them. And on the cross, Jesus brought the power of Satan to nothing, disarmed him. Now, how how's the cross achieved this? I think we should ask. And uh, simply, it, it takes away the penalty of our idolatry, of our um, being mastered by these things other than Jesus. It takes away the penalty for sin, which is death. So that Satan can no longer successfully prosecute or bring accusation against God's people. Takes away the power of sin in our lives and allows the Holy Spirit who lives in us when we come to Christ to break the lore of idols. And to set our hearts right, to set our hearts fully on Jesus himself. Samson prefigures Jesus' triumph at the cost of his own death over Satan. As Samson killed many in his death, so it would take the death of Jesus to kill Satan, the unseen power of idolatry and the power of death itself. See, both also were saviors alone. In the same way that the Lord Jesus would, Samson did act, he did his act of deliverance all by himself. And this act of deliverance was unlooked for and unasked for. Love what Edmund Clowney says here. So God had shown that he could deliver Israel with an army of willing volunteers. He had shown that he could save with as few as 300. But when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, the Lord showed that he had no need for even 300. That he could deliver by one. David Jackman adds, Samson's narrative begins with a strong man who is revealed to be weak. But it ends with a weak man who is stronger than he ever was before. That's the good news. Jesus became weak so that we might become strong. He became a sacrifice that we might become children of God. The Lamb of God indeed takes away the sin of the world and reigns as the line of the tribe of Judah, awaiting for the fullness of time to bring his kingdom in its fullness. The kingdom that is now being built in us and that we are participating in building as we take the gospel to the world. Now we see the shadow. Verse 31. Then 
His brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaul in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the last crucial difference between Jesus and Samson. You see, Samson stays dead. The story was finished. But with Jesus' burial, in many ways, the story had only just begun. See, Jesus ruled beyond the grave, not just before it. The one who became weak to save will rule in strength and power eternally. Becoming and continuing on as a Christian is about this same pattern. Becoming weak to become strong. Only those who admit they are unrighteous receive the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician but it's those that are sick. I have not called or I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Only those that call out to the great physician will be healed. Only those that lose their lives will find life everlasting and peace with God. Only those that lose the focus on themselves. Only those that lose their focus on the empty things of this world, the empty masters, the empty idols, the counterfeit gods of this world will find true life in Jesus Christ. Friends, we must lose ourselves to find him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? God acts on behalf of his people. For Samson, it took the loss of his eyes, the loss of his strength, the loss of his comfort in order for him to come to the end of himself, lose himself and to call out to God. What will it take for you? Non-Christian, I urge you, call out to him for the first time. And Christian, this morning, will you deny yourself once more? The Christian life is a daily denial of ourselves. It's a daily losing ourselves. It's a daily looking not to our own needs, but to the needs of others. It's daily loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's daily trying to become and practice what God has declared us to be in truth. It's learning to be more like Jesus learning to put on Christ. Will you become weak, deny yourself, and follow Jesus? Non-Christian, I invite you to do that this morning. And Christian, I invite you to do it again. I'm always available to you throughout the week, and I'm especially available to you uh, during this time of response if you just uh, want to pray with me rather than by yourself. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we can sing our hymn of response together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and that we get to uh, have a wonderful illustration of how you uh, are sovereign over all things. How you worked even the worst sin in Samson's life to your own glory, and for Samson's own good, ultimately. That you used his hardships, you turned that which uh, it was meant for evil, and you used it for good. Lord, we thank you that uh, Samson shows us that it's only when we come to the end of ourselves, only when we're weak, that we truly become strong. We thank you that he teaches us, apart from you, we can do nothing. 
Father, help us to abide in you this week that we might bear much fruit. As we go forth and we rest in the gospel and meditate on the gospel, we think about the cross and the resurrection. We go out and build your kingdom in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our community. And we see your kingdom built throughout the whole world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.